Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, before we get into our time of teaching, there's something I'm excited to share with you. Uh, and that is, in two weeks from today, we will have with us our friend Brian McLaren. Uh, and the night before, uh, Saturday, October 29, Brian's going to be here down in our ballroom below us uh, for a book event based off his new book called Do I Stay Christian? Uh, if you don't know who Brian is, Brian has been for many of us a mentor, a friend, um, a, a parent figure who more than 20 years ago began talking about the questions so many people have with regard to their faith. And I think this is one of the best books Brian's written in a long time. And uh, he's going to be with us to really basically ask in public this question that so many people ask in private. Do I stay Christian? And if so, why would I? And so maybe you're here and that question resonates with you or you know someone uh, that that question resonates with. Brian will talk for about 15 minutes and then we're going to have a long time of discussion with a panel of people who have, uh, are continuing to ask and are working through this question. So again, uh, October 29, 7 p.m., you can find the registration link on the front page of our website, and uh, we'd love to see you there. With that said, let's pray, and we'll jump into our time of teaching. God, we thank you that you, uh, once again, have given us the gift of being alongside one another. Uh, we recognize that when we gather together in this space, we do so to center ourselves around you, the vital, loving center of the universe, and to do so alongside one another, those of us who bear no relation to each other except for the fact that we trust you and love you and have committed ourselves to the ways of Jesus. And so as we spend time reflecting on the scriptures, we ask that your spirit would speak to each of us, would open us up and would comfort and trouble us as we need to be comforted and troubled. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Numbers chapter 14. If you were with us last week, you know that we um, took, we're taking some time over the next three weeks, or these three weeks, last week, this week, and next week, uh, to ask the question, what's next? We're in a time in our world right now where it seems like change is everywhere, and so we want to reflect on how do we be, become people who move through change, which is really the only constant in our world. 
Last week, our good friend Jonathan Merritt was here with us, and he reflected on how there is a world that seems to always be ending for some of us. And this week, we want to reflect on what happens between an ending and between a new beginning. So with that said, Numbers 14, I'll begin reading in verse 1. We find the people of Israel in the wilderness between the land of slavery and the land of promise, and it says this, That night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now let me give some context to these words. And we really have to go back several centuries to even establish context where we meet a man named Isaac. Isaac had several sons. The land in which they lived was experiencing famine and they knew that in Egypt there was enough food for all of them. And so they picked up and they moved to Egypt and they settled there. That's the end of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. By the time we get to the first book of Exodus, it's fast-forwarded several generations, and the king of Egypt, whose title is Pharaoh, says to his people, hey, all of these Hebrew people, the descendants of Isaac, they're growing in number rather quickly, and if we don't do something about it, they're going to see that they outnumber us, and they're going to conquer us and make us their slaves. So you know what we should do? We should beat them to the punch, and we should enslave them. And this is exactly what happens, and this is how the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, end up enslaved for 430 years. Toward the end of the time of their enslavement, there was a child who was born to a Hebrew woman, and yet he was raised in an Egyptian household and given an Egyptian name. We know him as Moses. When Moses grows and becomes an adult, he leaves his home and he's walking around in Egypt and he sees an Egyptian slave driver beating a Hebrew slave and he loses his mind and he begins to beat the Egyptian slave driver and eventually beats him to death. Word gets out that Moses has committed a murder. He goes on the run as a fugitive. He ends up in the desert working for his father-in-law and one day in the desert, he sees a curious sight. There's a bush that's on fire And it's not burning up. And Moses says, I'm going to go over and see this curious sight is why the bush doesn't burn up. And when he goes over, God speaks to Moses out of the flaming bush. You know how that happens. And he says, Moses, I need you to go back to Egypt and say to Pharaoh, let my people go and bring them into the land that I will show you. Simple enough. Here's what we don't hear. Moses, I need you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, spend 40 years in the wilderness walking around, and then before you get in the land, I'm going to kill you, and they'll all go into the land that I will show you. What's interesting is if you hear the words of God in Exodus chapter 3 when he speaks to Moses, he says something's going to end and something's going to begin, but we don't hear anything about the middle place. And this is where we find the people in Numbers chapter 14 in the verses we just read. They're in the middle place. They have left Egypt. They have been carried out on eagle's wings, as the writer of Torah says, by God out of the land of slavery. And they're moving toward this unknown land, this unknown new beginning. 
And the first thing that they learn about the land is in Numbers chapter 13, right before the verses we just read, where some spies go up into the land to figure out what is the land all about. And when they come back, their initial report is pretty good. They're like, hey, it's definitely a land flowing with milk and honey, which means it's good for ranching and it's good for farming. In other words, there's going to be enough food for all of us. The problem is, the people there are very big. They're very tall. Some would say they're very Dutch. You have to be like from the Midwest to get that joke. Dutch people, by the way, are the tallest ethnicity in the world. That's a fact. You can look it up on Google after this. And I only share that with you because if today's sermon is terrible, at least you can leave saying, I learned something. They say the people are giants. They're so big, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And this is what causes the hearts of the people who are listening to melt like wax. And they begin saying, why did we ever leave? Why are we here? Did God bring us here to kill us? If we would just die here or maybe die in Egypt, you know what we should do? We should go back to the place we were. Because as terrible as it was, at least we know what was going on. See, they're in this middle place. They're in this liminal space. They're in this in-between space. And by the way, all of this is happening here in the deserts of Sinai. Now, I know some people really like the desert. I actually do like the desert for a little while. At this point, they would have been there somewhere between three to six months. And if you've ever been into the deserts of Sinai or into the southern part of Israel, which is called the Negev, it gets hot I was in the Negev one time in July, and it was 116 degrees. And every time I tell it to people, they're like, it was a dry heat. Like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. You've obviously never experienced 116 degrees with or without humidity. It's miserable. And you know what? We got off an air-conditioned bus, and someone was like, that's this. And we were like, okay. And we got back on the air-conditioned bus, and people were still like, oh, my God, that was so hot. Seven minutes, and we could barely handle it. Six months, of course they're going to complain. Why? Because they left what was familiar. Something ended, and now they're on the cusp of something new, but they don't know what it is. They're in a middle place. They're in this liminal, in-between space. How many of you have been there? You have a job? Yeah, of course. You have a job. Everything's going well. You start making plans for the future. And then one day you walk in and you see all your fellow employees walking out carrying the dreaded file box. And you're like, oh no, there's layoffs. You're thrown into this middle place. Something's ended, but you don't know what's coming next. Maybe it's a relationship, a friendship. Maybe your partner left. Something ended and you feel like you've been thrown into this current and you can't get your bearings and you have no idea What's coming next? Maybe it was the loss of a loved one. Someone that your life was very connected to. Someone who meant the world to you. And they passed from this life into the next. And now you begin looking down the road going, I don't know how life will ever move forward without them. These are the middle places. Somewhere between the end of something and before the beginning of something. And these are really difficult places to be. And I want to suggest that our culture actually doesn't really like these middle places. I don't think we as human beings ever did. But our culture is like, 
a snapshot of denial with regard to the middle places. Maybe it's because of like the rapid pace of life that we've just adopted and accepted as normal and just the way things are. We just go as quickly as possible through them. I mean, just look at your calendar. Do you have any space between anything? Not necessarily on the calendar, but mentally. I have a friend, and every time we connect with each other, this is often how the conversation begins. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Really busy. Which I don't understand how those two things go together, but I'm like, oh, yeah? What's going on? Well, this week, I'm going to be in Austin on a business meeting, and then from there, I'm flying to San Francisco, and I'm trying to close a deal with a client. And then I'm going to come home, and our kids have two soccer matches on Saturday. We're going to do that. I'm going to try to catch church, but, you know, that's pretty dispensable these days, so we'll see. And then I fly out Monday morning back to Austin to follow up on that, and then I'm going to go back to San Francisco and close the deal. Then I'm over to Tampa, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Your whole calendar is booked. Next time you're at a party or a gathering with somebody, when they're saying goodbye to you, just say, I want you to go home and savor this. They will look at you like you have drank way too much. Because <laughs> we don't savor, even the good endings, we don't savor them, do we? Something's over and we're like, oh my goodness, we have to find what's next. It's like the Jerry Maguire effect. You just can't be alone. Like everything has to really follow one after the other. What about our news media? I think they contribute to this. They're really kind of only a symptom of a greater reality. But did you guys know that Queen Elizabeth II passed away? I mean, sure, it like dominated the headlines for a bit, but then there was Hurricane Ian, and all of a sudden we were like, oh, the queen, that was yesterday. And then Hurricane Ian, like, where's that in the major news cycle right now? Like, we've already forgotten about it. And while many of us have forgotten about it, on Wednesday evening this week, we were on a, on a, or in our elder meeting, and one of our elders lives in Naples, Florida. And so we asked, hey, how are, how are things? And he talked about a nine-foot storm surge that went right through the middle of Naples and has decimated everything. And he said, it's going to take us years to recover from this. Meanwhile, we've already moved on to whatever story's next. Years ago, after yet another high school shooting, a friend of mine who's a pastor in Texas, three families in his congregation lost students to the gunman. And he talked about how overnight, the entire international community was like focused on their reality. And he said, then another shooting happened. He said, we watched everyone pick up and take off. He said, it felt like we were abandoned. Because we, we just don't ever even observe an ending, and all we're looking for is the next beginning. James Hollis, in his book, Living Between Worlds, speaks about this reality, and here's what he says. He says, in all passages, something is exhausted, something is lost and irretrievable, and something to replace it is not apparent. In all passages, there is the death of something. Naivete, the old roadmap, a plan, an expectation, a strategy, a strategy, a story, and so on. And what is yet to come is not yet present, not available, at least not conscious. Our culture hates this middle place. I mean, think about us right now in the world that we're living in. I mean, if I say the words March 2020... All of us are like, oh, that, <laughs> that was brutal. 
We started hearing sometime like December, January about this virus. We're like, ah, it's like another bird flu or something. It'll be fine. And then there was like this random like, hey, somebody in California got the virus because California is always the ones that do things first. And then like you hear like somebody else, get, and then you're like, and then it's getting to the point where you're like, wait, what's going to happen here? I'll never forget the Sunday, our last Sunday meeting before the pandemic, when we were like, hey, turn and greet people, but don't get near each other because <laughs> we had no idea what was going on. And then that Wednesday, March 11, I got a text. And I looked at it and it said, oh my gosh, did you hear that all schools in Colorado are going to be closed and kids are going to go to online learning? I'm not kidding. The first thought that went through my mind was, oh Lord, help us a whole generation of homeschool kids. <laughs> by the way, I'm friends with somebody who's homeschooled. She was on, she's on her staff and I ran that joke by her and she's like, oh, you've got to tell that one. Um, I could make more jokes about homeschool people, but moving on. So then all of a sudden you're like, what are we even going to do? How is this even viable? How is it going to work? That night, we're in an elder meeting, and all these news reports starts coming out, and I'm getting like texts from all sorts of people. One said, did you hear that they suspended the NBA season? And I'm like, well, who's going to miss that? <laughs> then the next one, March Madness just got canceled. What is happening? And then the one that really rocked me to my core, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson just got covid and I was like, what is going on? The world is ending. And you know what? The world was ending. A world was ending. Something, we were watching it just fall apart. That following Friday, we had a bunch of people over at my house around this table going, what are we going to tell our community? And we're like, you know what? We're going to communicate really clearly. And we said, DCC will suspend its services for three weeks and we'll see you on Easter. Like, super confident. We're like, that was a really, really good leadership there. Way to anticipate what's going to happen. <laughs> a year later, we're like, hey, welcome back. Hope you registered. And all of you are like 15 feet apart. Real good feeling of connection in here. A world was ending. And by the way, I think we're in a place right now where everyone's going, ah, uh, what? what's next? What does this whole thing look like? Have you noticed that people seem to be like more on edge and more angry and more despondent in our world? Have you noticed this? I think it's because we're in this unpronounced, unannounced middle space between a world that ended. We knew how things worked in February 2020. Here we are in October 2022 and we're still going, what's next? Maybe this is true in your own life in a far more personal way. I have so many conversations with people who call DCC home, who talk about their faith in a way where it's like, yeah, I don't know what to do with the faith I grew up with. It just, something's not working anymore. All of the answers I've been given, I can't do it. Like, I can't trust those anymore. There's a word that kind of floats around in Christian spaces these days, deconstruction. I'm deconstructing my faith. But what I've observed is that there's actually not a whole lot of deconstruction going on. I would say it's much more replacement. I learned this growing up, and I go, mm, I'm going to set those answers down, and I'm going to pick up all these new answers, and I'm going to hold them in much the same way I held these answers. Why do we go from there to there so quickly? Why do, we go for, why do we abandon deconstruction and go to replacement? 
Well, because that middle place between burying with peace the world you grew up in and learning to live in a whole new way is incredibly painful. And I speak from experience. Like, all joking aside, I get paid to be a Christian. And yet, there have been significant times in my life of deep doubt, of deep sorrow, of feeling like, even though you may not have meant it, I feel like you swindled me. Even though you may not have meant it, your beliefs have deeply wounded and injured people I dearly love. And it's really easy to go over here and be like, so I'm going to pick up all these beliefs. And you know what? If you get hurt in the process, it'll be just fine. You'll get a taste of your own medicine. Which, by the way, might be some of the problem between people who fancy themselves progressive and people who fancy themselves conservative. They're so much like each other, they can't stand to be in the same room. This middle place, though, where you're like, I don't even know what I mean when I say God anymore. This middle place where you're like, the Bible is the most archaic, backward, exploitive, misogynistic text I've ever read in my life. And I'm supposed to preach from it. This middle place where you're like, oh, that's the other story about the history of Christianity. See, these are the places where when you begin to doubt God, when you begin to doubt the Bible, when you begin to doubt the foundations and the tradition you grew up in, you honestly begin to doubt yourself. And you wonder, can I talk about this? By the way, I did one time talk about it and I got fired. You were like, oh, can't have questions in here. I was like, well, okay. Out. And so what do we do? We just pick it up because the disillusionment is far too painful. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? Yeah. That middle space where you know very acutely you don't know. It's everywhere. And by the way, it's a very, very painful reality. And I think in a way that's never existed in our lifetime because of the pandemic and because of the racial reckoning that was long overdue in our country, we are in a place where collectively, globally, we are hurting. And at the same time, collectively, we are denying that we're hurting, which is far worse. Because we can ignore the middle places if we want. doesn't mean the middle places don't exist. It just means we're denying them. We're avoiding them. And I wonder, why do we deny and avoid and try to skip over the middle places? Well, it's possible that the reason we do that is because the middle places have a way of like squeezing us and whatever's really inside us comes out. The people of Israel were in the desert, in the wilderness, we know, for 40 years between the ending of their time in slavery in Egypt and before their new beginning in the land that God had promised them. And in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the book right before they're about to go in, which is the book that was given to them after 40 years of being in the wilderness, God says to the people of Israel through the prophet Moses, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, why? To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. You see, these middle places... They're very exposing, aren't they? 
When people look at the ugliness that exists all over and in all different sectors in our country right now and say, what's going on? I'm like, well, we're in a middle place and it's exposing what's been there all along. I mean, let's be honest. Like, who really wants to take a good hard look at what's inside? Let me ask a question, and I want an honest answer. How many of you flew in an airplane this summer? Okay, so you were delayed or had a flight canceled, right? This is like very low-hanging fruit to describe the middle space that we're talking about. Maybe, maybe you like identify with this story. You're going somewhere, you're excited, it's finally a break that you've needed, you haven't flown in a while, so you're a little bit nervous, but you're up for it, and you get to the airport, and you get through security, and you're like, hey, that wasn't too bad. That wasn't, I'm glad I didn't spend the money on TSA PreCheck. I like taking off my shoes and emptying my bag. So then you get to the gate, and like, there's other people there, and you're like, this is, this is pretty great. Then you board, and your seat's better than you thought, and no one's in the seat next to you, and you're like, oh, yes, this is going. Then you back out of the gate, and you're like, come on, warm weather. And then you get to the tarmac, and then you just sit. And everyone's doing this. You're like, oh, I get it. You left the gate because that's when you departed. So if you have us out here, it looks better when they do all the reviews of, got it. And then 10 minutes go by, and you're like, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to be the unruly passenger. Flight attendant walks by, and you nod and smile because you're maybe going to get a free drink. Then you look down, and it's like another 20. They haven't told you anything. Does this bother anyone else? Just get on and tell me it's going to be a half hour. And you know, by the way, that the captain is eager to speak with you. Why? Because when you finally take off, 75 minutes later, you're up in the air for like 15 minutes, and you're, this is your captain speaking. We've now reached our cruising altitude of 32,500 feet. Visibility's great today, a little over five miles, and I'll let you know when we fly over the Grand Canyon. Winds are out of the north-northwest at 418 knots, which is a nice little tailwind. It's going to get us in right on time. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy your flight. I have a friend who's an airlines pilot, and I texted him one time, why do pilots tell us all the information that we don't care about? It's negative 43 degrees outside. Yeah, I'm not going outside until this thing lands. So my buddy texts back, dead serious. He's like, wait, you don't find that interesting? I was like, no, you know what's interesting? How long I'm going to sit on the freaking tarmac. That's what's interesting. That space on the tarmac between pulling out of the gate and getting into the gate at your destination, that space right there is revealing, isn't it? Because when you were in those places, were you like all worked up or were you like calm as a Hindu cow? Where were you? Even those little blips, even those little places, they can tell us something about ourselves. Maybe that's why we like to deny them. Maybe that's why we avoid them, but it doesn't change the fact that they're there. In his wonderful book, Transitions, William Bridges writes this about, transition, or about these middle places. He says, in other times and places, a person in transition, meaning between the end and between the beginning, left the village and went into an unfamiliar stretch of forest or desert. Removed from the old connections, bereft of the old identities, and stripped of the old reality. This was a time of between dreams in which the fundamental chaos of the world's beginnings welled up and obliterated all forms. 
It was a place without a name, an empty space in the world, and the lifetime where a new sense of self could gestate. One of the difficulties of being in transition in the modern world is we have lost our appreciation for this gap in the continuity of existence. For us, emptiness represents only the absence of something. I love how he talks about this fundamental chaos from which the world comes, disturbing everything. And the reason I love that is because it does feel like chaos, meaning a place where you once had everything ordered and you knew how things worked and you might be moving toward a place at some point where you will once again know how everything works, but you're in this middle and there is no order. Nothing makes sense. What worked there no longer works here and you're not sure it's going to work there. It's chaotic. But the beauty of that is, is that it's actually precisely in the chaos that there's a promise. If you're familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, with our Bible, the book of Genesis begins with a poem about creation. It's the ancient Jewish cosmology. And it starts with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. A more literal translation of formless and void would be wild and waste. You have wild and waste, you have chaos, you have darkness, you have water. What's interesting is that's not a unique scenario in ancient cosmologies or in ancient creation myths. Nearly all creation myths from the ancient Near Eastern world begin with some sort of chaos, with darkness, and with water. Now, we've been tuned in to look at those things as negatives. But in the ancient world, that was actually where things were just getting started. As a matter of fact, the ancient world began as a way of marking an ending is when an end, something came to an end, they would symbolize through ritual and through mythology and through stories and through poetry, they would symbolize chaos as a way of making themselves expectant for the emergence of new life. Mirsha Eliade, who is a mythology and a historian, says this about that. He says, we know that for the ancient cultures, the symbolic return to chaos is indispensable to any new creation. The return to chaos is, for a person of ancient culture, equivalent to the preparation for a new creation. All the rituals and initiatory rites that symbolize this return to chaos represent stages in a mystical death and resurrection. In the final analysis, it's the birth of something new. The promise is, is that if you're here this morning and you find yourself in this middle space, our ancestors would show up and tell you, oh, get ready, because there is something new emerging. There's some new life. One of the hints that we see in the creation poem in Genesis 1 about the way that this works is the phrase or the hook that the writer puts in the poem. The hook is this, there was evening and there was morning, the first day. There was evening and there was morning, the second day. There was evening and there was morning, the third day. The days in Jewish consciousness begin in the dark. They don't begin with the sun rising. 
Maybe you're here and you're thinking to yourself, things just seem so dark, so confusing. Yes, yes, in the ancient consciousness, that's not terrible. That just means that the sun is going to rise. And the question is, will you wait for it? Or will you just turn on all the lights in the house and pretend that it's light outside too? See, one thing I know is that many of us are here this morning, and in one way or another, we're in this middle place. I can tell you certainly, as a faith community, broadly speaking, we're in this middle place. As leadership, we're currently having a conversation saying, what will we make of the world? The pandemic has changed the world. What will we together make of the world? Like, I'm not going to stand up here and give you cheap answers being like, hey, here's what's happening next, because I'd be lying. I don't know either. And we, together, collectively, as a faith community, we are in this middle place, just like the rest of the world. We currently purchased a new building. We sold another building. We're working to sell this building. People are like, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to wade through it. We're going to walk through it. We're going to do it together, and we're going to trust. We're going to trust that even in the moments that feel chaotic, that that's just preparing some sort of new life that's going to emerge. That's what we're going to do. For some of you, that makes you tremendously nervous, and I get it. Makes me nervous a lot of days, too. But what it does is it asks us a fundamental question. Will you trust in the God that speaks into the chaos and brings out order? Will you trust in the God who speaks into the darkness and brings forth light? And by the way, I'm asking myself those questions almost daily. Will we trust that? Maybe in your personal life, there's been the end of something and you have resisted it with every fiber of your being. And you've resisted it by going on to something new. And even in the midst of something new that you're trying to tell yourself, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. There's something that wells up within you from time to time and you don't know what it is. Maybe it's that you skipped over this needed middle space. You refuse to walk through the chaos and the darkness and that thing that wants to give birth within you is waiting for you to stop. Let's not forget we're a part of the Christian tradition. Central to our tradition is the story of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. One of the things I've noticed, especially in Protestant traditions, is that we kind of talk about the death. We definitely don't talk about the burial. But man, when it comes to the resurrection, let's go. Bottomless mimosas for everybody. But the real power of the story is Saturday. That day in Jerusalem where everything was a bit quieter because the festival had just ended. A day in Jerusalem where people who knew Jesus and loved Jesus and followed Jesus were wondering what had just happened because the weight of the shock and the grief and the horror hadn't really yet settled on them. Saturday, the day where the stone was still firmly in its place. Saturday when darkness was still within the tomb where Jesus was buried. And yet it was precisely in those moments of grief and shock and sorrow that God was making ready his power to exert it and raise Jesus to new life from this middle space of grief and chaos and darkness. Light and life and new birth came into the world, not just for Jesus, 
but for all of us. Maybe this middle place asks us, do we trust that story? Do we trust that story? Because one thing I know and I've learned through experience is that these middle places say, will you surrender enough to the chaos to see what kind of new life God wants to birth in you? Will you sit in the middle of this confusing, disorienting time? Will you sit there long enough to see what God will do in you and through you? Will you wait patiently in the darkness, believing that in time the sun will rise? Because one thing I can tell you that I know for certain about this middle space is it will come to all of us. Another thing I know is that when Jesus ascended into the heavens, he said, I'm with you always. Which means that when we're in these middle places and it feels chaotic and dark and confusing and hurtful and painful, while all of those things are true, as people who follow a risen Jesus, we can say, I wonder what new life is being born. Let's pray together. God, we recognize uh, that the places of disorientation, of confusion, of not knowing where to turn, the moments when nothing feels certain and the only thing that we plan on is more chaos, that those moments are deeply, deeply troubling and difficult. And the temptation often is to become those who take control or sort it out or figure it out. But I ask that we would be those who would avail ourselves to greater surrender, to greater trust, to greater patience. That we would be those who, while we stand and wait in darkness, believe that the sun will rise. And would you give us this confidence in these moments because we, by reminding us constantly of the story of your son Jesus who went through death who descended into the depths and who through your power brought new life to our world. We pray these things together this morning in the strong name of a risen and living Jesus. And all my friends said, amen. Thanks for engaging with our weekly teaching. Before you go, we wanted to highlight a few things going on in the life of our community. As DCC, we hope that you will find a community that encourages and challenges you in your faith. And one of our favorite ways to do this is through our community groups. These groups seek to grow closer to God, share life and friendship with each other, and care practically for their neighbors and their communities. We have a number of groups listed on our website. So whether you're looking for other parents with young kids, fellow young professionals, or want to engage with our new Falling Upward group to explore what it means to live out the second half of life, we have a group for you. And if you don't see the group you're looking for, we would love to equip and empower you to create that space and lead a group of your own. You can visit our website at denverchurch.org groups to get connected and find a group for you. 
To stay connected with everything that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email through our website, denverchurch.org, or download our DCC app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. Again, thank you for listening. We hope to be together again soon. And now may you, our siblings in Christ, continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that together we might be a healing presence in our world. Go in peace.